Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to Diabetic Eye Disease Pipeline Therapies Part 3. I'm Christina Wang. I'm going to be moderating today's discussion. We're going to be talking about two upcoming treatments that are being investigated for diabetic eye disease, brolicizumab and the port delivery system with ranibizumab. And I think what's particularly interesting about this session is that these two treatments are actually already FDA approved for the treatment of neovascular AMD, but are also being looked at now for diabetic eye disease. I want to take a moment to thank Evolve Medical Education for providing the CME webinar and of note, this is actually part three of a three-part series on diabetic eye disease. So go back and definitely check out the first two parts if you haven't yet. We also have a companion series on neovascular AMD that you can look into. Without further ado, it is my great pleasure to welcome my colleague and good friend, Dr. Sophie Bakri, who is professor and chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at Mayo Clinic. Sophie, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Christina. Well, I'm really excited to learn from you. I always learn a lot. Uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about these two treatments today, but before we even get into that, I thought that we would start with a real life case. This is a real patient of yours that I think highlights a lot of the drive behind these longer durability agents when it comes to treatment of diabetic eye disease. So take us through this case, if you would, Sophie. So this is a case of a 76-year-old uh, white male, visual acuity 2020 in the right eye and 2025 in the left eye. And he was diagnosed with early proliferative diabetic retinopathy with no diabetic macular edema. He was pseudophagic. He had a mild epiretinal membrane uh, in both eyes. And uh, his underlying condition was type 2 diabetes uh, with vascular complications and an A1C of 8.5% as well as nephropathy. So here is the uh, color uh, photograph. It's a wide field uh, fundus image and you can see uh, some evidence of diabetic retinopathy. And same here applies for the left eye as well. Now the fluorescein angiogram on the other hand is much more revealing and here you can see several patches of NVE as well as some capillary non-perfusion uh, infranasal. In the left eye, you can also see a few patches of uh, NVE as well. The OCT has no edema on the right eye, but a small epiretinal membrane. And the left eye, the OCT has no uh, diabetic macular edema. So the findings were NVE in both eyes, and there was actually some minimal NVD in the left eye as well. There was no vitreous hemorrhage, no diabetic macular edema. And the big question here is, you know, what are the treatment options? I mean, this is early proliferative diabetic retinopathy, does not meet high risk criteria, and um, there's no edema. I am in a city where we have a lot of diabetes, and you and I both know that our diabetic patients struggle uniquely with compliance, so I'm really less apt to leave someone untreated, even if they don't meet high-risk criteria these days. And that leaves us really with two options when we're talking about non-surgical PDR, and those are anti-VEGF therapy given as intravitreal injections, or of course, panretinal photocoagulation. And some people, if it doesn't meet high-risk criteria, sometimes you'll give a light 
treatment of panretinal photocoagulation, but I do like the um, relative permanence of laser. How about you, Sophie? I think there's several treatment options here, as, as you mentioned, you know, the, the laser, certainly I would also uh, go towards a light uh, laser um, or uh, anti-VEGF therapy. Now, anti-VEGF therapy is actually approved for the treatment of diabetic retinopathy, really of all stages now. Um, so if the patient is compliant, we may uh, consider uh, injections. Then we have to deal with any issues of non-compliance as well. So this patient actually received monthly intravitreal anti-VEGF injections for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And the patient was um, stable and showed some NVE regression after several months. And after a six month delay in treatment uh, due to uh, COVID, the patient had a vitreous hemorrhage due to uh, proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So that is uh, unfortunate to see because, you know, I think that anti-VEGF works so well for PDR. And a lot of times, especially when you have smaller tufts that are localized of neovascularization, like this patient did, you can actually see those regress even after one injection sometimes. The problem is, is that with anti-VEGF treatment, it has a shorter half-life. It doesn't last indefinitely. And the patients generally have to come in repeatedly for continued therapy, maybe not indefinitely, but usually for a period of time. And there's been studies that have looked at patients who are lost to follow-up after anti-VEGF monotherapy versus those who are lost to follow-up after panretinal photocoagulation. And unfortunately, in those studies, it seems that patients who are treated with anti-VEGF monotherapy may fare worse if they are lost to follow-up for long periods of time like your patient was. And so I think this really points and is a nice segue to what we're going to talk about today, which is the fact that we really do need longer durability agents. And whether that's for PDR or for diabetic macular edema, I think there's so much to be gained by our patients from longer durability therapy. So tell us first about brolicizumab, if you would, Sophie. Well, brolicizumab uh, is an anti-VEGF uh, therapy. It's a humanized single chain antibody fragment uh, with a molecular weight of 26 uh, kilodaltons. It's a pan-VEGF-A inhibitor, and it's currently FDA approved for the treatment of exudative age-related macular degeneration. So here you can see a comparison between the different anti-VEGF therapies currently available. You can see that brolocizumab has the smallest molecular weight. Um, it actually has the highest clinical dose for neovascular AMD and the highest equivalent molar dose. And all this indicates its potency. So um, I'm gonna go through the Kite and Kestrel studies, which were the pivotal studies for brolocizumab in diabetic macular edema. So the Kestrel and Kite are two-year ongoing phase three multicenter trials. And uh, in Kestrel, patients were randomized to brolocizumab three milligrams, six milligrams, or aflibacet two milligrams. And in Kite, the randomization was one-to-one -one brolocizumab six milligrams and aflibacet two milligrams. The um, study design was that the patients uh, receiving brolocizumab had five loading doses every six weeks, followed by an every 12-week dosing in year one, with an option to adjust to every eight weeks at some predefined disease activity assessment visit. 
The aflibercept group, on the other hand, received five loading doses monthly, followed by fixed every eight-week dosing. And here you can see what I've just described, you know, in graphical uh, form. And there was an option to adjust from the 12-week to the eight-week if, if um, there was any activity at the disease activity assessment visit that you can see here in yellow. And the good news is that the primary endpoint was met in both Kestrel and Kite, and rolacizumab, six milligrams, was non-inferior to aflibercept in terms of visual acuity. There was significant improvement in central subfovial thickness from baseline uh, with rolacizumab, and here you can see the, uh, uh, the comparison. And there were more brolocizumab-treated eyes, achieving a central subfield thickness of less than uh, 280 microns at weeks 32 and 52. Also, fewer patients on brolocizumab had subretinal fluid or intraretinal fluid at weeks 32 and 52 as well. And here you can see the uh, safety uh, profile. Um, certainly you can see the uh, number of uh, patients who lost 15 letters or more at uh, 52 weeks, and that was 1.6% in the three milligram brolocizumab group, none in the six milligram uh, brolocizumab group, and 0.5% uh, in the aflibercept group in Kestrel, and it was 1.1 compared to 1.7% in Kite. Now, in terms of uh, endophthalmitis um, and intraocular inflammation, uh, you could see the uh, numbers here, 1.1% uh, in Kestrel for brolocizumab versus 0.5% for aflibercept and 0.6% uh, uh, on both the brolocizumab and the aflibercept uh, in kites. Also, intraocular inflammation, uh, you can see was slightly higher for the brolocizumab at 4.7 and 3.7% versus 0.5 in Kestrel and uh, however was equivalent in kites at 1.7% uh, between uh, both drugs. So in terms of adverse events of special interest in Kestrel, there was one subject in the brolocizumab 6 milligram arm that had both retinal vasculitis and uh, uh, retinal occlusion. Both events resolved without treatment and vision at week 52 had increased by 14 letters compared to baseline. And in kites, both retinal occlusion events were reported as a retinal artery occlusion and were not associated with either intraocular inflammation or retinal vasculitis. And three out of the total five endophthalmitis cases in both studies were culture positive. So we'll run through the conclusions of kite and kestrel. Um, Brolocizumab, six milligrams, was non-inferior to aflibercept uh, in vision at week 52 with fewer injections. Significant improvements in central subfield thickness from baseline were achieved with brolocizumab six milligrams. There was a higher proportion of patients with fluid resolution on brolocizumab six milligrams at week 52. And more than half of brolocizumab six milligram patients were maintained on a Q12 week treatment interval up to week 52 immediately following the loading dose. Overall, brolocizumab had a well tolerated safety profile. And the safety data showed no evidence that underlying vascular disease had a negative impact on the brolocizumab-related intraocular inflammation. 
Well, thank you so much, Sophie. That was a terrific summary of the Kite and Kestrel data, which was read out at Argo this past year. You know, it it's frustrating, I think, because we never really have been able to identify the root cause of this intraocular inflammation, and especially the most severe cases with retinal vasculitis and retinal occlusion, even from Hawk and Harrier, which has been closely analyzed. And I think a lot of us were hoping that we wouldn't see the same effects in Kite and Kestrel, but yet again, you can see that there's IOI, retinal vasculitis, and retinal occlusion that have affected the steady cohort. Despite the fact that the visual acuity outcomes seem to be non-inferior to a FLIVRCEP, but with much greater durability that's lended to these patients. And also when you look at kind of the most extreme drying, it seems to be a potentially better drying agent, which is something I think a lot of us did observe when we were using it for some of our neovascular AMD patients. So I guess, you know, my, my question to you is, is there a, a place to potentially use borlicizumab in the DME space, or are you uh, concerned about the safety profile enough that you don't think that any of the patients should be treated with it? I mean, what is your thought? Is there a special group of patients that may benefit from this? Well, first of all, I think the patients really need a, uh, an adequate consent. I think that's uh, very important. And then we have to look at the response to other agents and we have to look at the durability and really sort of weigh up the, the risk-benefit uh, profile. Um, certainly, it's a smaller molecule. It's uh, more potent. We've just showed that um, uh, there's less patients with, uh, with fluid and macular edema. So that's all a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and shift our discussion to port delivery system with ranibizumab at this point. This is really exciting. We just heard about this not too long ago because it was recently approved for the treatment of neovascular AMD. And this is potentially our first surgical approach to our conditions that we've conventionally treated medically. And it's also being looked at now in this diabetic eye disease space. So tell us a little bit about where we stand with PDS. Okay. So I'm going to go through uh, what PDS is and talk about some of the results in macular degeneration, because that's really what we have. But at least it gives everybody an idea of what is potentially coming. So uh, the PDS is a, uh, it's, it's a small uh, device that allows for continuous intravitreal delivery of uh, a customized formulation of ranibizumab. And here you can see what the, uh, what the eyes look like and what the implant uh, looks like. And so this is a refillable uh, implant that is surgically placed at the Aquarius planar. And the surgery is done in the operating room, but the refill um, procedures are done in the office. And here you can see uh, that the uh, mechanism of continuous uh, drug delivery here is uh, passive diffusion. So the latter study was the phase two study design for uh, macular degeneration, randomized three different doses of uh, PDS to monthly intravitreal ranibizumab. And the median time to the first refill was assessed at the study completion. And the good news is that 80% of the PDS group in the high dose and the 100 milligram per ml uh, dose went six or more months without meeting refill criteria. Here you can see uh, the probability of not receiving uh, any uh, refill. 
And the mean change uh, in vision uh, from uh, baseline was similar in the uh, high-dose PDS group to uh, intravitreal ranibizumab given monthly. Uh, this now will discuss the next study, which is really the phase uh, three archway uh, study. And this is uh, now where patients were randomized either to uh, PDS with ranibizumab in high dose, since that was what worked the best in the latter study, and compared this with intravitreal ranibizumab uh, given uh, monthly. And the top line data was that uh, PDS every six months was equivalent to monthly uh, ranivizumab, and there were far fewer treatments in the PDS uh, group, and it was well tolerated. So we'll go through some of that data next. So here you can see, uh, you know, the Archway uh, trial design. And the change um, in visual acuity um, at uh, Q24 weeks. Um, is about plus 0.2 uh, letters with the PDS versus plus 0.5 letters with ranibizumab, but the PDS was non-inferior and equivalent to monthly ranibizumab. And here you can see that the PDS maintained vision through week 72 in the study. And the PDS also controlled retinal thickness uh, through week 72. And over 90% of patients in the study did not need any supplemental treatment before each refill exchange procedure, which would take place every six months. So that's really great news. There were five times fewer treatments in the PDS patients as well, and that was over a mean duration of 78 weeks. So we'll go through some of the adverse events. Obviously, this is a surgical procedure uh, with a refill. And um, uh, in the uh, PDS uh, patients, there were more cases of uh, cataract. Uh, and certainly when it, come, when it came to uh, conjunctival um, issues, uh, there was some erosion and retraction um, and uh, some bleb issues, but uh, you know, quite a bit of that was remedied later on with some refinements in surgical technique. There was one uh, PDS patient uh, who had a repeat event of uh, endophthalmitis and you can see here that uh, the endophthalmitis rate was higher. It was 1.6% in the um, uh, PDS group versus 0.6% in the ranibizumab group. In terms of retinal detachment, whether regmatogenous or traction and, and vitreous hemorrhage, um, the retinal detachment rate overall uh, was 0.8% uh, in the PDS group and 0% uh, in the ranibizumab uh, intravitreal group. And the uh, vitreous hemorrhage rate was uh, higher in the uh, PDS group. Also, there were three patients uh, in the trial who experienced implant dislocation and one of the implants 
uh, sorry, two of the implants um, dislocated after week 40. And there were high levels of ranibizumab in the aqueous throughout the entire refill exchange period. And um, the uh, PDS is approved for, uh, by, the, by the FDA for the management of wet age-related macular degeneration. And it is currently in clinical trials, the Pagoda and the Pavilion uh, trials for diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. And so, um, you know, we just talked about some of the complication rates such as vitreous hemorrhage, uh, conjunctival retraction. And really in response to these, the uh, surgical uh, steps have been uh, prescribed and uh, really very meticulous uh, surgery um, is indicated, including pars planar laser ablation of the sclerotomy and um, very meticulous conjunctival and tenons closure in uh, two separate layers. So with this, hopefully the risk will be minimized. Yeah, and I think you really point out something really important here, Sophie, which is that the procedure itself has been continuously refined throughout the trials as, as they have gone on. And we have learned that each step is really, really critical in preventing some of the most common adverse events that you covered so nicely in that table. And if you remember in the latter phase two study, there was a very high percentage of vitreous hemorrhage that was observed. And it was after we figured out we should maybe laser the, the wound um, and be very meticulous with conjunctival closure to prevent you know, post-operative hemorrhage that we were able to reduce that significantly to the, to the levels we have. And similarly, with these late dislocations that have been seen that occur most frequently during the refill exchange procedures, people are going back and looking at how that wound was constructed and making sure that it's exactly that measurement and not a little bit longer because just a tiny bit can, can really change the outcome for the patient and increase the risk for implant dislocation. So bottom line, I think there's so much that we can learn and still will learn even post-approval um, for neovascular AMD and also if it ends up getting approved for DR and DME as well. And these best practices that I think we'll share amongst the community will, I think, continue to make this a safer and safer procedure, even though it is surgical, which is always something to consider. One other point I wanted to make from that graph uh, of the adverse events is that you'll see a lot of the adverse events occurred before the week 40 time point. I think that's encouraging and gives us a little bit of direction about how we might follow these patients. Only a, you know, the, the, only a smaller proportion occurred late in, in, in the process. And most of those were the dislocation of the implants, et cetera. So it's not that we don't have to follow these patients closely throughout. I think we will have to, but I think it also tells us that perhaps when we first implant these devices in our patients, we have to be a little bit more cognizant, a little bit more careful in monitoring them in that initial period of 40 weeks. Um, anything else to add in terms of the safety and what we might be able to do to really minimize those adverse events in our patients? Yeah, I think um, it's important to, you know, do the first uh, cases very, very carefully, um, you know, really write it down beforehand, make sure that no steps are missed and that the hemostasis um, is, is really meticulous um, as well. You know, again, 
We don't want bleeding, we don't want dislocation, and we don't want conjunctival retraction. So um, I think that uh, you know, with evolution of surgical uh, technique and surgeon experience, hopefully all these risks will be minimized. You know, one thing I struggle with, Sophie, is as I mentioned earlier, our diabetic population generally has additional burdens in terms of um, their socioeconomic status and maybe their lifestyle. They're usually younger patients who have other obligations such as work that make compliance more challenging than it could be for some of the other conditions that we treat. And so I go back and forth between really wanting to use some of these longer durability agents for them, but also understanding that a lot of these longer durability agents are newer and carry perhaps a greater safety risk than some of our conventional agents that we're currently using. So it's a little bit of a trade-off. You know, how do you feel about putting in a surgical device in somebody with diabetic retinopathy or DME if it's approved, but then knowing that they, you know, have a higher chance of being lost to follow-up compared to your average AMD patient? I mean, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough one. I mean, luckily, we do have a lot of options, and uh, in that way, we can select our patients carefully, right? We all know the patients that have a high need for anti-VEGF and uh, can come back and are willing to come back. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, that's important now. Um, at the end of the day, you know, if we have a refillable um, port and we inject, you know, every six months and the patient doesn't show up, well, for one of the six months, at least you know that they have some drug on board, whereas with the monthly intravitreal therapy, then they're not going to have the drug on board for that period of time. So, I mean, there's pros and cons, you know, to everything. And uh, also, you know, some of the data from, from PBS uh, initially really showed that um, in many patients, they didn't need a refill exchange procedure even at six months. They could go nine months, you know, 18 months and longer, right? So we don't know what's going to happen with the results in DR and DME. Um, but certainly, you know, I think that uh, by now, you know, we, we all have a lot of established patients in the practice uh, who we know very well. And, um, and, you know, we take things step by step. And, um, and, and really decide who the best patient is for each procedure, because there's going to be different procedures and different drugs and, you know, more things coming down the pipeline as well. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And it, I'll just point out again for the listener that in the phase two ladder study, it was really sort of a treatment interval finding approach, right? They let patients sort of run as long as they could before they needed a supplemental injection. And uh, in the highest concentration dose, patients were able to go a median of over 15 months, like you presented so well. But then when you were looking at Archway, they mandated every six months a refill exchange. And so it's interesting to think about, like you said, will we try to run these patients out even longer than every six months? I've sort of heard both approaches being discussed amongst our colleagues um, we'll have to see, but I think with technologies like home OCT that are also coming up, it's going to be really interesting to see how long these patients can actually go out. And I think we're going to also learn a lot about how the fluid responds in a continuous dosing approach like this. Great. 
Well, thank you so much, Sophie, for uh, giving us such a great summary of brolicizumab as well as the port delivery system with ranibizumab in diabetic eye disease. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts and insights. And I also want to take a moment to, again, thank Evolve Medical Education for providing the CME webinar today. Also check out a lot of their other amazing educational initiatives on the website. Thanks again, Sophie. And until next time. Thank you, Christina. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.